Welcome to the Vet Podcast by the Vet Gurus, Brendan and Mark. Get ready for the latest veterinary news, information and entertainment. Don't forget to visit us at the Vet Gurus website, vetgurus.com. Now, sit back, relax, it's over to the Vet Gurus, Brendan and Mark. Welcome to Vet Gurus, episode 180, March the 12th, 2021. Brendan here with Mark as usual. Vetgurus.com, the place to go. We haven't sort of mentioned it too recently, have we, Mark? Well, at least a week. And at least a week, perhaps. Go there, poke around, look at the previous episodes, subscribe would be great. And uh, even better, maybe have a think about clicking on the Patreon link and becoming a patron and throwing us a couple of dollars to help support the podcast. And Brendan, you you, you mentioned episode 180, um, which means we're just 20 episodes shy of the double century. Um, we... we uh, have you have you come up with a bit of a competition to celebrate the um, two hundred? Well, the prize package, Mark. The prize package is is slowly building at my end. I don't know about you, but um, gee, I wish I was. I could enter. Um, so there'll be some very good prizes. But no, I haven't decided how we will um, select the winner. Or winners, we may even have two um, for this particular 200th episode, Mark. I expect that what we'll do is exactly the same as what we've done previously, that anybody sends us an email gets a free entry. Um, very complex. Um, and then I just make a simple little database and I randomly draw out or ask you to um, pick a number. And uh, 7,000. That's right. <laughs> And then we select the winner. So that's probably the plan, Mark, and that way we avoid having um, any sort of problem with saying we're having a competition that um, is illegal to run. It's just a giveaway anyway. Um, there's no there's no formal thing with it. It's just talking between friends, isn't it? Uh, it's so true. That's exactly what it is, and we love to involve our other friends. It sometimes feels like it's just you and I having a quiet chat, and um, on occasions it um, – it, uh, I sort of am struck by the fact that there are some other people listening to us, so um, it's good to involve them and we look forward to their, uh, well, once we announce it, the competition to celebrate 200. Yes, and if anybody thinks of a better way to, to promote the competition or to draw the winner, then send us an email at gmail.com. <laughs> And I don't think many people are listening at the moment, Mark, because I can hear crickets in the background. What's happening over at your place? I don't well, know whether our listeners will be able to hear it. I'm sure they will. The sound production on our uh, podcast is so outstanding that um, not a doubt in the world they'll hear those crickets in the background. Um, it's just I've had to move through the house to a quieter, well, obviously, um, barring the crickets, it's quieter than the other part of the house. So um, anyway... Just it's it's not because it's boring. It's not because no one's saying anything. It's not because of any other reason than just the temperature and the absence of insecticides in my garden. Ah, it sounds very sort of summery to me. I always associate that sort of sound with with lazy summer days um, down here in Melbourne. Do you ever Mark? try and work out the temperature by the noise the crickets make? Do you know there's a formula for it? No, tell me more. Um, 
I am just trying to, uh, here we go. There is uh, that the, you can tell it's Dolbear's Law, D-O-L-B-E-A-R-S. It's the relationship between air temperature and the rate at which crickets chirp. It was formulated by Amos Dolbear and published in 1897 in an article called The Cricket as a Thermometer. And there's actually a there's actually a formula. Um, it's accurate. Oh, yes, I can say it here. Yes, it's accurate to within a degree when applied to the chirping of the field cricket. So, what do you have to do? You have to <laughs> you have to do what? Um, what's the formula saying? Um, the temperature in degrees Fahrenheit is yep. fifty. The number fifty plus. The number of chirps per 60 second minus 40 divided by 4. Ah, okay. Well, you better start counting <laughs> after we finish. Um, I, I, I would, I would, it's, uh, I, I reckon I'd love to have met Amos Dolbear. How the hell did he come up with that? I, I, well, he obviously wasn't paying much attention to his social media because he had time to uh, yes. to count the number of calls the number of chirps um yes i'm very impressed by amos's work the sad thing is mark that when he first published it there were literally crickets because <laughs> nobody believed him uh, if you read the article yes. on wikipedia and the paper went unnoticed until after well after his publication <laughs> so um in the journal of experimental zoology yes uh, <laughs> well, that's very good i think that's um well done you come up with some very Esoteric <laughs> information there. And speaking of um, things that are not related to the vet podcast, Mike, we were going to do a quick little film review this week. And, and before we jump into that, I think we should do a bit of a teaser for what we will be reviewing next week. And do you want to do you want to take that? I do want to take that. I, it's it's been a particular interest of mine to um, to write my medical records better. And um, we have been uh, very generously um, supplied with um, some software and some hardware that uh, that purported to help me do exactly that. The, there are a number of companies now who have dictation software, and one of those, um, the Talkatu company, um, expressly is targeting the veterinary industry, and, and I know you've had some uh, practical um, times uh, working with the gear, and now I have built up a bit of a bank of experience as well, and um, it'll be something for us to uh, talk about at length next week. Absolutely. I'm excited, Mark. And, and yeah, full disclosure, we did um, both get given a, a, um, a trial um, of this and a, and, um, a microphone to go with it. But um, having said that, we'll still give it an honest review of the product next week. And um, yeah, I think there's some exciting software and exciting times ahead, Mark. And um, we'll talk about that next week in episode. 181. <laughs> but before we uh, get into our think, news stories, Mark, yeah, I think we wanted to, I think yeah. our palindromic episodes, the num they're the most some of the most exciting. So we've reserved that for next week. <laughs> yes. Now you wanted me to review this film. I, um, I do. because I did put you onto this film. And well, I'll do that slight intro, but we we 
shouldn't harp on it. We're sort of out there with this, but yeah, it does. I think it's good for people to um, have a bit of a feel for the sorts of things we get up to, Mark. And this was um, this was George Lucas's first feature film, Mark. Um, THX one one three eight, and me being a bit of a a film buff and a science fiction buff, I've um, enjoyed this film for many years, and I recently. Um, viewed it again um, with the director's cut and um, after I did that I suggested to you to have a bit of a look at it so this is um, well before he you know went on to make the Star Wars series it was um, in um, based on a student film um, um, that um, he made in 1967 um, and then he went on to make THS, THX 1138 and as um some of you are into sort of audio um, systems and that, um, THX um, and Dolby um, na- named one of their little um, software products after um, as a as a um, as a little um, mention to the film. Salutation. As well. so, salutation. Yes, I was trying to trying to think of the right word there. So, Mark, tell me about this film and tell me what you thought about it. And it's it's I must admit it's very arty, and um, a lot of people will absolutely hate this film, but um, I thoroughly enjoyed it um, on the third or fourth viewing that I've um, had of it, including the director's cut. Well, I, I'm, it's sad, Brendan. It's sad that you have asked me to – you know, for a podcast like ours, we need conflict. We need disagreement. We need the frisson of different opinions. And, um, and you've not done us any favours here because I absolutely agree with you. I think this is um, – uh, an almost essential piece of film um, that um, anyone that's interested in uh, the, you know, particularly George Lucas's development, but science fiction movies in general, I think this is almost like an epochal um, uh, um, trend-setting film. And um, and I'm so glad you suggested that um, that I take the time to to. Um, Watch it, and um, and it is interesting how, um, you know, while it's a science fiction film, its def- its focus is um, is society uh, much more than than you know the the science behind it. The science is literally a a vehicle to to have a bit of a, a social and a critique of social interaction and and society more largely. It's it's an excellent film. I loved it. So did I, Mark. So <laughs> did I. Yes, it's 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 basically a dystopian sort of future, isn't it? Where um, where um, I think sexual intercourse and reproduction is prohibited, according to the Wikipedia sort of summary of it, and um, and everybody tr- takes pills, they take drugs, and um, yeah, it's a bit. A bit, dep- a bit very dark. depressing at times, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. But um, I, I, um, I just wish he he used a little bit of um, the skills he he um, developed in this film with um, his later Star Wars films, which were a little bit um, a little bit kitty, a little bit juvenile. Some of the Star. I mean, I love the Star Wars series, um, the initial three, but um, I just still find them a little bit. A little bit light on, yeah, whereas this one's a little bit deeper and, as I said at the start, a bit of an arty film. So, um, yeah, I thoroughly enjoyed it. And I think it stands up pretty well considering it was made in 
1971 mark is when it came out. And, yeah, and, so. um, and the, the cast is – one of the things I love about looking back over movies and now that, you know, we talked about before we came on the considerable number of years that we've accrued between the two of us, um, but, um, you know, Robert Javal and uh, Donald Pleasance um, really um, – uh, outstanding names, and I think it might have been even. It was one of the first films Robert Duvall yeah. did, and um, Crikey's it, and Francis Ford Coppola yeah. um, produced yeah. it as well. I think. Yeah. So it was um, excellent. And actually, I made a mistake there before. So THX um, is the Ameri- um, company that George Lucas founded, the sound company, um, which developed the THX. Yes audiovisual standards for theatres and that, which is under the parent of Lucasfilm, which is his other sort of parent company as well. So so he named that little sub, subsidiary company um, After. from his original film. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So there we go. So enough on that. I give it uh, – what do you give it, Mark? Oh, of, um, I give it a 9.8 out of 10. I give it – yeah, I'd, I'd – 9.5. <laughs> You're 9. a hard yeah. man. <laughs> well, let's jump into news. I'll, I'll take the first one, Mark, and it is I've stolen it from you, and it's about wisdom. Um, and I've stolen it from you, of course. Um, <laughs> wisdom, the world's oldest known wild bird, has had another chick. And, and I know you want to you, you just bust in to say a few things here, but I'll just quickly run through the article. Um, at more than 70 years young, wisdom, the world's oldest known banded wild bird, has laid an egg, and it and wisdom is a laced albatross. And um, have they named the the youngster? Mark? They haven't yet. Um, no. The um, so the bird hatched at the beginning of last month. The U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service announced. Um, so wisdom was first identified and banded on Midway Atoll in 1956, Mark, and is and, and she's hatched between 30 and 36 chicks wow. at least. Um, so even before she became the world's oldest known breeding bird, um, she'd logged hundreds of thousands, if not millions of miles, flying around the northern Pacific Ocean. Um, so pretty amazing bird, uh, Mark, wisdom. Um, I think you've, got, you've probably got some other little stories about um, wisdom, but they've been tracking, studied and tracking um, thousands of al- albatrosses like wisdom for 85 years at Midway Atoll. Um, and wi- wisdom's been returning to the island for decades, um, even outliving the ornithologist <laughs> Chandler Robbins, who first banded her. So that is, that's a good news story, Marcus. It is a great news story. It is, uh, um, and, and, and wisdom's. Uh, given us huge amounts of additional information, and um, and particularly about uh, how long lived, how 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 much long lived birds might continue to co- contribute to the the uh, the populations. Um, so, yeah. So, how do, how long do you reckon an, an albatross could live for, Mark? Well, apart I, from apart I think, from. Um, my best, my best guess, yeah, yep. I reckon these birds will um, will uh, uh, probably they're roughly the same size as you know the cockatoo type birds, and there's uh, there's no reason to think that they they um, would differ from them dramatically in um, life expectancy. And um, yeah, it's um, it's it's a as you said, 
a, uh, a good news story. And to have a bird at that age still be reproductively active, um, particularly the, I mean, I know they make the point in this article, uh, I, um, the, the albatrosses suffer significantly from um, long line fishing where the fish get caught on the, the uh, you know, the, the long line, the kilometres long fishing line with multiple hooks on it. Um, and then the fish near the surface, the albatross dive down and grab and get hooked themselves. And so a significant number of um, albatross die each year, like um, in some small island populations, it's quite possible that this will lead to extinction. Um, and so for wisdom to chart her way through 70-odd years of uh, this stuff and contribute 30 or 35 birds to the next generation, it's, um, it is exciting stuff, Brendan. I was hoping um, it was a little secret hope of mine that you would try and pronounce wisdom's long-term current mate who likely fathered oh, the chick. I've closed the article, so you're going to have to attempt that, Mark. I can try and get it up, but you can try. No, no, I think I, I, it's it's certainly um, – I think you've got to take into account that it's um, uh, it's the North Pacific Midway Atoll, and so the majority of um, the US Fish and Wildlife Service officers who work in that area come from Hawaii, uh, oh, yes, okay. Akia Kamai. Yes, you smashed it. Here I was trying there to set you go. up for a mispronunciation and you just <laughs> belted it out of the park. So what have you got, Mark? Have you got a good news story for me? I have. Oh, hang on. I do. Well, do, yes. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know what to make of this story, Brendan, to be honest with you. Um, I like the story because it uh, – it does contain some of my favourite topics in the world, and and that includes Boyd's forest dragons, the spectacular agamids from the rainforests of northeast Queensland. Um, it does include sex, um, always one of my favourite topics, and um, and some controversy. I was begging for us to have a little bit of conflict earlier in the show, and and maybe this is the place. So the story is that um, uh, Doris, a purportedly female Boyd's Forest Dragon at uh, Melbourne Aquarium, um, stopped laying eggs. And on more detailed uh, inspection, namely uh, the application of an ultrasound probe uh, by an unnamed member of our profession, um, it was suggested that this was, in fact, now not a female but a male lizard and that there had been some, well, uh, clownfish-like change in sex to explain um, the, the presence of laid eggs now... now transposed into transformed into a male is it um and I, I said to you before when we were discussing this case that um a uh, one of the researchers who was uh, who's uh, published widely on sexual development of agamid lizards sarah whiteley um she said that such an unusual occurrence would require very convincing data um and she remains uh, skeptical but intrigued and look i think that's how I feel, exactly like Sarah. 
skeptical. Intrigued. Or skeptical, yeah. but intrigued. I think, look, I can... I could imagine a whole bunch of scenarios um, that uh, there were three lizards in the enclosure for six years. And um, so one of them was male and two of them were believed to be female. I could easily imagine uh, there being some confusion about who was laying the eggs in that circumstance. Um, yeah. Old mate died and the two females were moved into a new exhibit. Um, and, geez, Doris binged like a male dragon when she was offered food in the new enclosure um, and her secondary sex characteristics, uh, the, the thickness of the crest, size of the cephalic scales and uh, general brighter colour took off. Um, her weight shot up from 100, and, which is always... She would have been very worried about that, 112 grams to 159. Um, yeah, I, 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 I have my doubts that, um, that we've had a genuine female to male sex change, but I could easily well, we'll see. Probably. Keep a, um, a finger on the pulse for this one, Mark. Okay. And um, maybe we should contact Mr. Fair. Yes. Um, was the keeper there? Um, there are more yes. questions than answers, he says. There are, there are. Fair comment, <laughs> fair comment. Okay, let's jump into our main story, and it's a bit of a quickie. We did cover um, a broader range of this topic in episode one hundred and seven, and that um, for those of you who haven't listened to episode one hundred and seven, why not? Go to vetgurus.com and just type in the search bar, 107, and your wife's off to get the 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 pizza. Yes. (laughs) Uh, So our main topic is a little bit more specific. That was about environmental enrichment for reptiles in general, and we're going to summarise a subsection of that this week, aren't we, Mark? Environmental enrichment for snakes. Um, So snakes in captivity, um, why do we do this, Mark? What is environmental enrichment? Um, what's some example of it? And what positive or negative things does it result in? Let's jump into it, Mark. What is environmental enrichment for those of us who aren't particularly or um, fair with the term? Mark? Well, I love using the example of... Um of uh, the traditional zoo cage, you know, the pit that was used to house um, to house uh, big cats uh, in decades gone past, and um, and uh, it's interesting because that's an easy way to maintain them in captivity. But um, it uh, and it may even help keepers control parasites and other health diseases. But it has. Um, bad psychological effects. The cats in those enclosures, the big cats in those enclosures develop um, psychological problems. They develop stereotypies, pacing behaviours. They will often develop serious health problems as a consequence and leave their normal behaviour behind and and fail to reproduce or maybe act aggressively to cohorts. So environmental enrichment is the process of trying to, in some ways, emulate aspects of the natural environment that these animals would come into contact with, um, you know, stimulating their senses, challenging their um, activity levels 
so that they um, that they have a, a more fully well-rounded psychological life. And one of the consequences of that endeavour, whether it be with big cats or um, uh, legless reptiles, um, is that they have it has physical health consequences uh, as a secondary benefit. So not only are they healthier in their mind, um, they're healthier in their body as well, Brendan. Well, you've answered all the questions that I had there, Mark, about why it's important and what what does it help prevent, um, perhaps. So, and I think but one, you know, we harp on about... um, exercise in the mind of of these pets um, which has been sadly neglected hasn't it in the past and um, I think snakes are a really good example of it and I'm going to jump ahead to one of the things that it might help prevent before we go into examples of it and that's the thought that perhaps these um, and I saw one I don't know how many of them you see Mark I think you see a fair few of them we saw one I think two weeks ago um, with the spinal osteopathy syndrome or, or whatever you want to call it in, in snakes, Mark, and one of the thoughts is that um, that particular condition is is virtually non-existent or hasn't been reported in, in wild-caught um, snakes of the species that we commonly see with it, the, the carpet pythons and variations thereof, um, that getting them out there and exercising their mind and exercising their body as a result of exercising their mind can potentially help prevent this sort of um, disease process. What's your thoughts on that, Mark? <laughs> I think it's an excellent thought. And I think that, um, you know, the the whole um, uh, spinal uh, osteomyelitis uh, um, osteopathy syndrome, whether it's um, secondary infection or remodelling of the bone, um, whichever of those patho- uh, etiopathogenesis we're talking about, there's no doubt that... Um, the nature of circulation, and particularly in reptiles where it's not a, you know, those animals switch off when they don't have anything to stimulate them and they're in a dark, warm spot. They literally switch to an altered level of metabolism. And that's a great thing for their survival in the wild, but it's not something that can be maintained over a lifetime. The inert nature of circulation that results from um, inactivity has consequences and those consequences are definitely, uh, uh, you know, it's intuitive that um, altered levels of blood flow to those areas are likely to result in um, uh, the possibility that bacteria can contact the wall of those blood vessels passing through those vertebra and trigger this sort of problem. And, um, and of course, then the white cells can't get there nearly quickly enough because of the sluggish blood flow to affect any sort of cure. So to my mind, it intuitively makes sense that snakes that are kept in the sort of drawer systems that um, that have limited, you know, the, the type of... Uh, herpeticulturist who has large numbers of animals and needs to store them in large numbers of snakes and needs to store them in a small space. Um, They are likely to use these draw systems, which have no, you know, no, often have nothing besides water and um, and some absorbent substrate for the snake to exist. So these these 
banks, these reptile banks of cages yeah. you're talking yeah. about, aren't you, with yeah. these breeding populations? So it's, it is a related sort of question, Mark. Um, what Because we're talking about environmental enrichment for snakes, um, obviously your, your thoughts are that they're not, not – a good thing for that for those snakes, and that they're basically it's a battery hen type situation, isn't it? Really, I mean, they're just just confined in these very small little drawers or, or enclosures, vivariums, and and very little environmental enrichment or stimulation, and they're just used as breeding animals. What is your approach to the client that you see that that brings snakes or reptiles to you for? Um, and they have this sort of um, setup. Do you discuss this sort of? Um, do you have this this discussion with them? Definitely have this discussion. And it, as you could, you've sort of hinted in your question that it's a difficult discussion to have. Um, many of the clients that are at the level where they're they you know they have a bank of of uh, fifty sixty snakes. Um, they're they're um, managing the the electricity supply to those animals, they're already heavily invested um, financially in that system of care, um, and they're invested emotionally. And so that discussion is really, really difficult. There are, I, I, I do think it's an important one to have, and I do think um, that most people who keep snakes have a natural tendency to want them to do their normal stuff. Um, and while you may not be able to flip every one of the people that house their snakes like that, I, we've had some really gratifying success talking to people about the ways that they might um, increase the levels of activity amongst their snakes and uh, maybe completely shift their paradigm in terms of what keeping those animals in captivity is all about. Yes. So let's get back to the standard sort of owner of, of a couple of snakes, for instance, in a, in, a, in a reasonably sized enclosure, whatever that may be. What sort of things do we talk about when we're, when we're chatting to clients about environmental enrichment for snakes? Give some practical examples of what, what you suggest. Well, the first thing that we ask is the, the type of snake. We do want to make a little bit of a distinction between um, the species that are that are um, uh, terrestrial fossorial animals, animals that live in the leaf litter, like maybe some of our Aspidites species, the black-headed python and whammer, and contrast that with the snakes that um, are, are much better climbers, the arboreal um, uh, snakes of the carpet python family, obviously are the first ones out of the... the um, the box when we think of that one and just making sure that we're you know whether it's a uh, uh the the anthill python the very small pygmy anteresia or any of the other children's pythons being aware that they like to do both those things and so a practical example would be that um that the uh aspidites snakes love to um to uh, explore the leaf litter on the ground and will often um, you know spend a good deal of time rearranging themselves among the leaf litter and you have to you know there are circumstances where you can actually use leaf litter and obviously the smells and textures uh, uh, the 
um, those uh, micro, the molecules that um, snakes apply to Jacobson's organ, the vomeronasal organ, that's all stimulation. But even if you can't do that for reasons that you want to, you know, maintain a, a, a biological barrier that you want to protect from some of those viruses that the snakes might have, and even just using uh, bedding of um, torn up newspaper um, to create a three-dimensional um, environment in the larger floor space that you give these animals, that's a stimulation for them. Then to add to that, I know that many of the people who would keep these animals, um, they open the cage door, they have a prey item suspended, you know, if it's a rodent by the tail, um, and they quickly, t- you know, put it in the range of the the snake and and a healthy one of these animals will be on to that straight away. But it might be better for them to, um, you know, track the animal maybe through the enclosure, let it uh, leave a scent through the torn up newspaper and uh, some hollow logs that might create the furniture for that enclosure and and then watch as the snake's tongue flickers. I reckon you can actually see them smile, Brendan. They are happy to do that stuff when they get that stimulation. And it's amazing how, how you know, it's, I've seen some keepers do that at zoos as far as do that little scent trailing in a big um, display enclosure um, for for some um, snakes there. And um, it may take the snake, you know, half an hour to eventually find that that thought out, you know, rat, mouse, chicken, whatever, um, because they've 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 gone over the log and under the tree and around the corner and, and back again, and it literally they put the snake away off display in its little hidey hole, um, off display um, hide, and then they release it. And yeah, it's um, fascinating to watch how how they um, spend all that time, and they're they're pretty well. Um, yeah, I think they're. In, I, don't, I don't know whether they smile. Or not. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think you might be drawing a, 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 um, maybe, I don't know, can snakes smile? Um, you need to write a book on that, Mark. Remember that um, a podcast episode we did about do um, which which animals fart? Um, so um, you can have a, have a book, um, Does It Smile? I and like you can it. talk about I different like species. So, yes, it's doing things like providing scent trails um, and it's also not just um, exercising their body as well as their mind. Um, And I think I'm just amazed at how many people, you know, just a standard reptile owner client, snake client, um, who who does not or or rarely changes anything in the enclosure and doesn't do something as simple as just add another another log or another branch in there um, that they've just got from down the local park or in their backyard that's fallen off a tree yeah. and, and, and and just change in that environment slightly. Yes, they might have their their favorite little hide or, or um basking log or, or rock etc that um, the animal likes and you may want to keep that in and the owner might like it because it visually it looks good as well um, but I'm just a bit depressed and, and, and surprised at how, how few people um, provide those sort of environmental enrichment simple ideas and, and, and items that cost literally nothing to do um, and I, 
the way I try and get across that whole environmental enrichment with enclosure furniture, Mark, I, I point the client out to our hospital enclosures and, and I say, look, here's our hospital enclosure and it's a glass-fronted um, wooden melamine enclosure um, with, with a heat um, heat element in there and, and a um, newspaper or a paper substrate um, and a plastic little little hide and that's about it. Um, it's great for for hygiene and hospital, but it's uh, it's like being put in solitary confinement. Um, and I say, you know, what, what what imagine sitting in that all day every day. Um, and um, and I think it gets across the message to them that hey, these animals need a bit of stimulation, and we want to provide an environment that does enrich their lives um, as as best we can, and they're not just in that little you know little. Sinbin. What do you reckon, Brendan? Uh, I've got the other thing that I often talk to clients about is um, is walking the snake. Now, I know that, you know, this sounds a bit corny but uh, because they don't have legs, obviously. But um, they, I reckon getting them out of the enclosure, taking them outside and obviously applying whatever biosecurity, um, you know, if you've got 100 snakes and you're worried about, um, sunshine virus, then you do need to be a bit sensible about it. But um, but I reckon that if you've got one or two snakes and you're not you don't have a viral problem currently, then taking them out on the lawn, having some sort of um, gym arrangement, even uh, like you said, a simple structure um, that that's a, a gum branch that's blown off a tree. Um, so that there's some shade and cover from predatory birds, but also access to sunlight and a bunch of different um, uh, a bunch of different uh, odors and scents. That variation in light and heat and uh, olfactory environment, I think it's immensely stimulating for those animals, and and they do move more vigorously to um, to perch on such a branch. I, I mean, I literally have done it myself in the last two weeks where um, I've taken animals out of enclosures and, and put them into such a circumstance. And, and once again, I reckon I can actually see them smile, Brendan. They are happy to do that stuff. <laughs> yes. Well, we, our routine is to recommend to all our reptile owners to have a separate outside enclosure and I usually keep it simple and suggest to them that they just go and buy the equivalent or make the equivalent of a rabbit hutch. Um, so for the bigger snakes, that's all you need. So it's got a little hide area. They can get away from direct light. It's got the mesh, um, providing the mesh is small enough so the animal can't escape and it's escape-proof and predator-proof. And I, I get them to put you know some branches and logs and that in there so they have their outside enclosure. And if it's a nice day, it doesn't matter whether it's summer or winter or spring, autumn, fall, if you're in certain places in the world, then you can put your animal out there and then um, you bring it in um, around about um, dusk um, and it can be out all day. Um, providing the temperature's not too hot or too cold. And, um, yeah, that's what we strongly recommend to clients. And, you know, I'm, I'm sure you'll say the same, but I've, I've literally lost count of how many reptiles that I've seen for a consultation and the, 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 the reason why they've come in is because their animal hasn't eaten uh, yes. for, you know, one day, one week, one year. And uh, I, I ask the owners to take them outside to get some natural light and it may be just... 
sitting outside with their snake draped around them for half an hour while they're having a cup of coffee and it's I've literally lost count of how many of them will then go on and eat um, the next day. So um, the value of, of, of natural light and that, that UVA as well as the UVB mark. So environmental enrichment, very important. And I think related to that, that with the general environmental enrichment that owners often make the mistake of, of having a white light in the enclosure. So like all animals, um, need a daytime and a nighttime and um, some some clients make the mistake of having a, a white light in that enclosure or they situate the vivarium inside a, a busy part of the home if it's a share house or, or lots of people and, and it's in the lounge room, the, the kitchen, etc. and there's people coming and going at all hours of the day and night, um, that animal doesn't experience a, a proper daytime and a proper nighttime. And again, you know, not, not either providing 24-hour light or 24-hour darkness is a form of torture. So um, I think it's important that we tell our clients or at least alert our clients to that fact that they need to ensure that their animal has a proper daytime and a nighttime and they have a have a cycle a cycle of life a cycle of light mark you're so deep <laughs> any other any other um sort of other points you like to um, the only other one mention about environmental enrichment in snakes the only other one that um i regularly mention is um is changing up the prey items. Now, I, I do this cautiously because I know that um, some snakes will develop a little bit of a, um, you know, a ferret-like obsession with one particular food. Um, but I, I, I reckon that, um, that uh, offering different prey items, um, it, I know you can keep them on one prey item, but the textures, the odours, the... the um, Different, different physical nutrition that arises from those uh, different prey items. I think that's a, an enhancement and variety to enrich the the um the thought process and and life of our snakes. Um, I don't get upset if they you know if they try a little quail and the the uh, snake doesn't take to it. Um, that's okay. It still had a different experience and made a choice about what it wants to do, and I think that's a good thing. That's a good point, Mark, there. And I, I'm not a particularly religious person, but I think more than one prey item is probably a good thing, Mark. Don't you agree? <laughs> oh, my goodness. I think Mr. Outro's jumped here. We better get out of here and we will talk to you all next week. And we'll have that review of an interesting software and hardware Thanks for listening system. to the Vet Podcast by the Vet Gurus. Don't forget to visit us at the website, vetgurus.com, where you can subscribe, view show notes, listen to previous episodes and more. You can contact us via email at vetgurus at gmail.com to ask a question or just say hi. Thanks again and see you next time. Hold up. 